You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me at the end, well, not quite the end, but nearly the end of a very remarkable week in energy news is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? Uh, I'm well, thanks, Giles. I trust you're well. I trust, uh, and I trust our special guest today is uh, well, as, as, as are our listeners, uh, uh, and, and looking forward to having an interesting conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I would like to welcome Dion Campbell. He's the CEO of the listed company Tilt Renewables. Dion, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Good to see uh, to be talking to you, Giles. And let's see how we go. Let's see how we go indeed. Look, we'll start off with talking about um, Tilt Renewables interim results, which came out earlier this week. But there's a lot of other things to talk about. The New South Wales Energy Plan unveiled uh, by Matt Keane. Um, some more news from AEMO and its transition plans in Victoria, which I'm sure is of interest to you, Dion. Um, and even Andrew Forrest Fortescue Metals, huge um, plans for a global green hydrogen um, system. Anyway... Let's start off with Tilt Renewables. Um, Dion, you reported results which were probably down a little from what you were hoping um, at the start of the year. Your main problem, I think, has been the Dundonald Wind Farm and the uh, delays in the commissioning process there. But this week, I suppose you've got some good news because you've been invited or allowed to expand up to another hold point. And I think you're probably around about two thirds production capacity now. Um, could you just tell us what the situation is there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're right. The results aren't where we thought we'd be. Um, we all, always said this was a year in transition for us as as we moved from having Snowtown 2 in our asset base to two projects in construction, which, you know, always have the opportunity to go slightly different than you had anticipated. So Dundonnell really has been that for us. Um, with the increasing understanding AEMO has of how the whole NEM um, responds to increasing penetration of renewables now that they've got an integrated model, we, we found that they've kind of held us up at Dundonald um, while they've tried to understand certain fault scenarios and so forth. And, you know, it's been an interesting journey. Um, you probably would say you wish you weren't here, uh, but we've we've learned a lot. Um, I think AEMO's learned a lot. We've probably developed some new relationships we didn't think we needed. Um, <laughs> we've, we've managed to, to tidy up things and yeah, get to the 226 megawatt hold point um, uh, late on Monday. And for us, that's 85% of a typical year or P50 energy yield, right? So we're we're 85% of the way there. I think we've got a good path to get to what is 97% of our expected yield by Christmas time, um, which will be roughly three months later than expected. So it's it's untidy, but it's not it's not really the end of the world in context of a 30-year asset. So yeah, extra effort, um, probably better for all of us that we've done it. Um, 
won't be looking forward to doing it again. No. What exactly has been the problem there? Because it's been hard to sort of ascertain from the outside looking in. I mean, as far as we can see, and, uh, and, and from your announcements, you've done everything that you thought you were expected to do for the registration and you started generating. Now, we have seen some other projects being held up because they had sort of um, quote-unquote performance issues or quote-unquote um, technology issues. Yours doesn't seem to be in either of those cases. It doesn't seem to be a problem with your wind farm. It seems to be an issue that was discovered in the grid as a whole. Yeah, that's probably the way to describe it. We did get fully registered as a generator in the NIM, which is required to start running. And uh, and we uh, achieved that somewhere around March. And about a month later, AMO said, hey, look, we've this new modelling capability we've got has meant that we probably need to have a chat about your registration. <laughs> and uh, of course, we've already committed $650 million and made a long a long way towards progressing the completion of that construction at that time. So look, it was a bit of a surprise for us. I think it was a bit of a surprise for AEMO that, that the performance that they registered us with at our asset was no longer really going to... Um, uh, past the bar that they were setting, and I think what's happened is it's they're in transition. The, the energy rules in Australia have gone from about number eighty five when we uh, were registered, uh, or at least when we got offered to connect, and they're now at about one hundred and fifty one. Right, so the rules in Australia are are evolving very very fast, and we were sort of went through our offer to connect and registration process, kind of in the middle. And I think we were just in a, in a little bit of a hole in terms of AMO's thinking. So, look, you know, they've, they've tried really hard to not make this as uh, bad as it could be for us, given that we were registered. And um, even the project progress we made this week, they were, they were pretty flexible with some of the stuff we had to deliver. Um, they worked really hard, including over the weekend, to make sure uh, we got there this week. So, look, we're... we're Look, we're disappointed we're here. Um, you know, we've lost a bit of revenue we thought we'd get, but we're really happy that we've been able to get an outcome that they're happy with, that we can deliver, and we haven't had to go for any extra capex of that project. Dion, that that uh, capex point is interesting, and uh, you know, I I was looking through for my own purposes at a, at a bunch of uh, operators and. Uh, I increasingly think in a fragmented market that operational expertise is going to become more and more highly valued and, and the, obviously the winning, the winning companies as the market consolidates are going to be those with operational expertise. Um, I guess the point I wanted to start with though was to come back to the bigger question about listed wind and or solar developers. You guys had a takeover offer uh, last year from your majority owner, which was knocked back. But now there's 15% minority shareholdings, something like that. And I think Mercury's there with 20%. Uh, there are sort of two questions I have. But one, one is, what's the, you know, is it, is it, is it uh, viable to be half pregnant, if I can call it that way? But secondly, uh, we also saw the takeover of Windlab and of Infogen. And I'm just wondering what you see as the future for listed wind development and solar development companies 
uh, in Australia. I mean, in the United States, Next Era has done an incredibly sensational job, Austin and Denmark. But, 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 I mean, how do you think about your Tilt's longer-term future and strategy in, in that context? Yeah, it's a good point. First of all, we've got two large shareholders in Infratil and Mercury who are completely supportive of what we're doing and how we're doing it. And I think that's pretty special in the listed space. Uh, other companies, such as those you mentioned, maybe didn't have the cornerstone kind of believers, you know. So they were they were there. They possibly weren't performing as well as the, you know they might be expected to, and so they were probably right for takeover. But we're we're a bit different. We've also got a scale and a future investment pipeline that is is way superior to to those companies, and so. And we have this discussion a lot with our major shareholders. Can you support us as we head through this next wave of investment? And they're, they're both saying, both the big ones and actually the, the more sort of smaller ones are there for the journey, right? And so, look, consolidation probably is a reality going forward. There's a lot of people that may have thought there was a bit of a, a runway ahead of them in Australia. Maybe there's not anymore. So... One day the owners will look to get out. But for us, we're here. I think we have the benefit of operating in both countries, New Zealand and Aussie. So there's a bit of, if you like, um, resilience to, to things that politicians might do. Um, and, and we've been doing it for 20-odd for years. So we kind of we do have that operational experience. We, we, we think we know what we're, what's required to make a good, profitable asset base. And we're not impatient. You know, We, we can sit here and stay as we are for a few years without anyone pressuring us. No, I, I see that, but I, but I don't know that the market will sit still uh, for uh, a few years, When and in fact, it seems to me it's in very rapid transition. And this brings me to the other uh, general point that there's a bit of a dichotomy between people who think that the outlook isn't all that good in the sense that there's not much a way around in the way of PPA opportunities, and there are all these transmission bottlenecks. And yet, on the other hand, we've seen three and a half gigawatts by ITK's count get to go-ahead status this year. And I'm just, uh, and I think a lot more projects are going to be announced for various reasons. And I'm just wondering how you see your, you have, as you say, got a great development portfolio. It's a really a terrific set of options. And, 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 I mean, what do you think about the pace of development from your perspective and the opportunities out there? Yeah, it is going pretty fast, eh? And that's part of the challenge for AEMA, of course, is that it's going faster than perhaps anyone really thought it would. For us, for us, as I said, we're patient, right? So, so unless some activity happens at shareholder level that it really sort of we're probably not that closely involved with, our mandate is to keep a really high quality portfolio of options together and put them to the market when the market requires them. And so, you know, we, we've made progress since we've been demerged with Salt Creek, with Dundonald, with our Waipipi wind farm in New Zealand. We've got some discussions happening around Rye Park. Um, it is harder to secure a PPA. There are projects that have announced offtake prices that you know, re really don't reflect the real market and possibly we've seen some of those projects not actually proceed. So 
it's a, it's a, it's definitely challenging. It's definitely not getting easier. You add the grid uncertainty and some of the other, um, you know, negative pricing, congestion, general constraints. You add that to it, and it's actually not. It's not a game for everyone. This development construction stuff operations tends to be a bit easier, but you know, we've had a few people really really badly burnt in the last two years as well, right? Oh, I agree with that very much. Could you just talk about a little bit about Rye Park, maybe in the context of New South Wales, and then I'll hand back to Charles. Yeah, yeah. Look, we've signalled for a long time now that as we as we build out our projects that we like in Victoria, we we want to head to New South Wales. And I guess um, Minister Keane's announcement today, or this week rather, really sort of helps encourage us in that thinking. Um, Rye Park is 400 odd megawatts we're, we're close to getting a planning approval to increase the tip height on those turbines to get the latest and greatest um, machines installed um, we think the project for New South Wales uh, wind farm offers competitive energy pricing and has a good connection uh, should not suffer what we've suffered um, at Dundonald mind you Dundonald we would have said the same about um, so for us, probably the focus then is on making sure that we've got the right contractors and the right technology and um, looking to make sure that our shareholders are happy that we take an investment decision sometime next year. The, 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 the broader um, New South Wales government strategy, I mean, as, as an investor, as a constructor, um, developer, um, you pretty impressed with that? I mean, just to sort of remind listeners, really, with it, it was sort of like a further step forward for um, what they previously announced on renewable energy zones. The fact that they, um, they've kind of updated this by recognising that to um, add, add certainty and to lower the cost of capital, they seem to be prepared to provide a base price to sort of underwrite the um, projects, contract for difference or what what have you. We're not really too sure exactly what they've got in mind. But, but how much easier will that make it for um, uh, companies like yours? Is, is it the cost of capital that, that's key here or is it the offtake agreements or is it in fact the actually having the renewable energy zones where presumably you will you will not run into the sort of problems that you faced at Dundonald? Yeah, well, it's, it's still a bit still a bit murky to be fair. I think I think it's hard to see exactly how um, you know, the proposed underwriting or, or offtakes would work. A, a reverse auction is sort of fine, but we've seen in other auctions where people win and never go and build whatever they thought they would build because because they just pitched too low. So we're a bit cautious around a gold rush approach. The, the high level theme of 12 gigawatts in New South Wales before 2030 is exciting and is not simple. Um, we take a renewable energy zone concept where the transmission is sort of provided with some voltage support or, or um, other network services as part of the connection. The, the investment timing then becomes a challenge and um, it's sort of chicken and egg, and somehow they've got to break through that. Someone's got to take the risk on that transmission connection. And both of our key sites in New South Wales, being Rye Park and Liverpool, have pretty solid connection opportunities that don't um, necessarily need to be part of a res. And I guess we see that as as optionality for us. If the res approach takes a bit more time than they think, 
we, we probably don't need to be involved. And if it goes faster and looks better than, than we think, then we can be involved. So we're pretty pretty well hedged in terms of that process. Um, there's also not, not you know, you, there is a merit order to the projects that might be announced in the state. And um, you take your view on the relative merit. And we think our projects, those two I mentioned, are, are up there in terms of the quality of projects. But that's not the only thing that drives people to invest. Sometimes it's, it's well, we've only got one project, so we can only choose one. So that's the one we're investing in. And we see a bit of that in the solar space. We, we literally can't see why people are building solar in Australia if they haven't had that option, such as a wind farm. And I think that's what we're seeing. So high-level rhetoric. Could you explain for li listeners a bit more about why um, why why you can't see why people would buy solar farms? I mean, I presume there's just too much solar in the grid and it's pushing prices down during the middle of the day. But um, could you just maybe just elaborate on, on your reasons for that? Yeah, yeah. So on, on, if we like for like economic basis, our solar options don't get near our wind options in terms of economic outcome. And there was a period maybe two years ago when, of course, there was a lot of build. Some companies uh, never made it through that process. And that's probably the market outcomes of people thinking solar is actually cheaper or easier than it is, right? And now we're seeing the rooftop solar, which has been an outstanding kind of success for Australia, um, starting to really impact on the, on the value of electricity from the solar farm. You know, no one actually wants more energy in the middle of the day when it's hot. Mm. I, I agree. I think that's a number one sort of a policy problem in the sense that you can make a case that solar is cheaper to develop than wind, uh, so it has a lower required price, but its value is uh, equally lower because there's only so much you can take of it at some other time, so you, you've got to find something else to do with it. Yeah, uh, that's right. I, 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 and, and ITK's price forecasts reflect that, to be honest. Uh, I want just about transmission. There's a heck of an argument about how to price transmission going forward. And Dion, do you have some thoughts about you know the generator sort of pays and gets a long-term arrangement, uh, uh, access arrangement, the sort of thing that's uh, been talked about, I suppose, in, in in New South Wales, not just in uh, the New South Wales strategy, but Transgrid itself has come up with its own sort of little version for so, for some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, in, in a way, some of the other markets around the world that offer um, offer you know, firm transmission rights in some in some manner um, do do remove some of the things like congestion constraints that might impact the business case. So I think the, the sort of um, open access arrangements in Australia make it more and more difficult, and you see a lot of that playing out in reality in South Australia. You know, and, and I, you know, there, there are people adding capacity in Austra in South Australia right now into a transmission system that just can't handle it. So I, I, I fear there are more, more blood to be on the floor before, um, before some perhaps more offshore investors really trying to get their head around what's going on in Australia. Um, it, it reminds me of one of my old uh, fund managers who always used to tell me back in about 1989, but I never forgot, there are, there are more bankers than banks. Uh, sorry, more banks than bankers. I got it the right way around. I think there are more solar farms than solar farm smart owners. But anyway. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and we've seen the outcome of that. And, but, you know, the, the, to, to use uh, the banks, uh, they, they, are, they are wising up to where 
the risks are in these things and um, you know what you got away with a couple of years ago in terms of debt funding you wouldn't get now so um, over time it has to it has to sort of normalize to quality assets and quality developers um, providing energy um, yeah mm. Given that, um, you've got a couple of storage assets, uh, battery storage, um, I think, in Victoria, but a more advanced one that you've been thinking about for a couple of years, and that's um, next to the Snowtown Wind Farm. It's not a particularly big battery, but you've been thinking about it for a while. What, what, I mean, my understanding from your last presentation was that you expect to make a conclusion sometimes over the next four months before the end of the March quarter. So what's sort of weighing up on your mind at the moment about battery storage? Are you sort of, um, is it the falling cost of battery storage? Is it the value stack that you can get out of it? Is it the sort of the shifting the energy? Is the, is the FCAS FK market already flooded? What are the things that you're considering um, when you're weighing up those options? Yeah, I think you probably summed it up quite well, but but for us, it's the battery project at Snowtown. There are a couple of things there. Connection-wise, we're breaking the mould and kind of going, if you like, behind the meter into the Snowtown wind farm connection asset. Not not in the pure sense, but in the sense that we we haven't had to build new and we haven't opened up the GPS at Snowtown. So there's a, there's quite a nice for Australia Inc. Um, process there that we're learning. Uh, around adding batteries to kind of legacy assets. So I think that's useful. But for us, we, we definitely think batteries are part of the future. At the moment, the sort of, you know, optimum two-hour type type discharge time really isn't going to help firm, you know, even a Snowtown asset. It's not going to be firmed in the sense that we can go and sell it to mum and dad as a retail offering, right? Um, but you look forward to the five-minute settlement, um and the way FCAS charges are made, a battery can make that difference between hitting up or down your dispatch target, right? So FCAS charges go mm. down if you closer. So for us, the battery is really about understanding how the various markets that a battery can enter into play. Arbitrage is one. Arbitrage sort of isn't that exciting because you, you need to also then recharge at some point. So if you, if you discharge and then you miss it by... By three periods, you're sitting there, a bit of a lame duck. So arbitrage is one. FCAS, the various FCAS markets are the other. Um, we'd like to understand what different control systems need to do, how the batteries behave, what they look like in, in the evolving sort of market in Australia. And it's not so much about future investment opportunities for us. It's about how the market will behave with these fast-acting kind of price-chasing assets that, that will sit there. And... You know, so if you look, we've we've mentioned we've got some thermal firming options that we that we are developing. Maybe they take a slightly different shape in the, in a market that's full of batteries. But until you know what a battery can do, you really can't do anything but guess. So we, it's a bit of an R and D project. We'll we'll make enough money to make it worth it. But it's more about what the team can learn, what our control systems do, bidding, how the market evolves for us. It, it, it's interesting what you're saying there because you're talking just about this sort of energy market and transition and you alluded to that about, you know, the issues um, with the connection process and all the renewables flooding into the market, people kind of learning as they're doing, AEMO, conducting more modelling, finding there's some weak points here and there and stuff like that. I mean, 
Um, does this sort of excite you or depress you? Or are you sort of confident that the whole process will be correctly managed because we're kind of doing it state by state and AIMA has a plan, but the federal government doesn't seem to have an overriding policy. You're talking about sort of, you know, sort of discovering what the battery storage can do as you're going along. Um, there just seems to be so many different variables going on. It's a pretty difficult job to be the market operator, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I think for us, the... the their leadership transition that they're in now will, will be key to how they sort of position themselves going forward. Um, mm -hmm. I think um, the federal government has pretty much made itself irrelevant in the transition to renewables. That they, they are, in my view, I believe they they are actually supporting it in, in sort of um, a secretive manner. They you know they're supporting Snowy Two. That's an important renewables penetration supporting asset. Uh, and we've seen that with Snowy in the market for PPAs um, in 2018. Uh, they're, they're talking about the second link with Tasmania, Marinus link. All that stuff's about supporting or enabling further renewables penetration. So I think while they're not overtly trying to drive the change, they are looking at where they might be able to help with their, the, the uh, entities that they own. So, yeah, I think does government policy matter anymore? The states have taken the lead, and, and perhaps they're better too, actually. I think uh, it's uh, federally it's about carbon policy. Uh, electricity has historically been a state matter for uh, states like New South Wales where energy security becomes an issue because historically they've been a net importer. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, and, and something has to be done over time. Uh, you can understand why states have moved into the vacuum. And, you know, uh, Matt Keane's gone a step further in a sense and that he's going to make the future come true and move, I think, New South Wales out of being a net importer to being, uh, you know, a leader and probably the biggest uh, state in terms of ownership of renewable assets as we go forward. But it does bring me back to the point that in terms of developing new, new capacity, I mean, do you foresee that you'll be selling to the government uh, at, at, at your potential developments or into the private sector. I mean, uh, one of the other things that you can observe, Dion, is that, you know, like the big gentailers who has a big retail market don't seem to, haven't for years bought any new uh, renewable PPAs. You can understand that, but, it, but in the end, what happens if they don't? I mean, that... yeah, I think, I think in the end they'll probably have to. Um... Uh, and, I, and I say that not, you know, what's driven their interest to date has been the re renewable energy target, you know, and, and we all know that's full. So I, I take a look at what's happening in New Zealand and the sort of the, the main and only real decent thermal asset over here is also nearing the end of its operational life. And so its owner, Genesis, has, has already partnered with us to uh, take the offtake out of our Waipiki wind farm for 20 years. And they, they're doing that solely because they need gigawatt hours to serve their retail load. So there'll, there'll be a point where those those big guys you talk about that have thermal assets that will, will exit the market um, need to find gigawatt hours. And so it, the, the easiest, quickest and cheapest way to provide gigawatt hours in the market right now is renewables. That won't change. Uh, the hard part is how to store it so it's available at a time uh, when you want it. And that, that's a mix of diversity in terms of asset type and location and it's a mix of some actual storage um, 
which I said many years ago has typically been a pile of coal in Australia, it's going to move to a pile of uh, lithium and water. <laughs> David, you've actually written a very good analysis um, this week, um, published earlier this um, week, and I think you've got another one coming up, um, talking about the uh, implications from coal, from the things like um, renewables and what have you. Maybe you can just sort of share with the listeners and, and maybe have a discussion with um, Dion about that. Um, you know, just, just briefly remind us what exactly your conclusions were. I mean, broadly summarising, it's that coal's going to leave the market before people had thought. Uh, yes. So, you know, the, the main point is that um, people are still underestimating the amount of new stuff that's been built because there was all this gloomy talk about how hard it was uh, earlier in the year people underestimated how much was still in the pipeline if you if you want to put it like that and actually as we've said at the outset of this uh, uh, podcast there's still been three and a half gigawatts that's got the go ahead this year despite all those difficulties and, and that's quite a lot that's, that's equivalent to a coal generator and a bit more, you know, to, to um, that's equivalent to a Vale's point has got the go ahead this year. And so over the next two or three years, as this stuff gradually comes online, uh, what we're going to see is softer prices and a reduction in market share of thermal generation and an increase in ramping. That's the amount that thermal generation has to close, that leads to the duck curve where, where, the, where the coal generation has to uh, reduce its output in the middle of the day and lift it up in the, towards the evening peak. And uh, that, in, in ITK's opinion, is going to become very pronounced down there in Victoria. And uh, we don't think uh, at the moment that, uh, and I'm not asking for Dion's opinion on this because no one wants to comment on other people's companies uh, and stuff, but um, uh, ITK believes that your lawn won't be viable by about 2025. Uh, and 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 so that's that's just one example. Um, we'll we've yet to see how Vale's Point, that is Sunset uh, Power International, performed during uh, the last fiscal year. They hadn't released their accounts the last time I looked, which was yesterday. Um, so a bit slower than last year. Um, and and. And, and, and overall, we see that by now with the New South Wales announcement, if they can stay on the timetable, which of course they won't, uh, that something like six, the, the six gigawatts of uh, thermal generation could arguably close by 2030, which will make for very volatile prices. And what we see, to finish this little burst of talking for someone like Dion, is that his uh, Tilt has got one of the best portfolios of undeveloped uh, assets that are out there that we at ITK know about. And every new asset that you can see, even though the development is difficult, every new announcement that goes ahead essentially is creating a market for itself in some sense because it's making it more likely that the thermal generators will close and that will make the prices go up uh, briefly or in a, some volatile fashion so i don't know that's 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 the way we're thinking about it do you want to get a, got a, got a comment on that yeah i guess the, the question for us is is it better to have uh, an overbuild slightly ahead of a coal power station exit so causing depressed prices for a bit or is it better to wait until they go and have a, a high price problem like we saw when uh, hazelwood left right and Actually, it'd be nice if energy wasn't uh, newsworthy in Australia at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. Bad chance. <laughs> good, good luck with that. 
Uh, just coming yeah, yeah, back to the much. battery, you, you, you mentioned, and it's early days for you with, with batteries, Dion, but uh, I mean, you, you say that a two-hour battery isn't much use at, at uh, arbitrage, but when I look at the way that uh, Next Era presents it in the United States, they're mostly using this concept of a four-hour battery adder uh, and, and saying that effectively that for that four hours, the overall price of electricity is... Is, is, is relatively attractive compared to doing it with gas. And they seem to have sold that quite well because they've, they've sold a lot of or got contracts for, you know, gigawatts of batteries now. And it does seem to me that the in the daily balancing market, the, the peak opportunity is relatively brief, you know, a couple of hours, maybe it's, it goes up a little bit so that it does seem to me that at some point batteries are going to be able to play in that market once enough coal generation has exited. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. And, and whether it's two hours or four hours, you just have to understand what they can do and how they can play. Right? That's why we want to do it. Um, even now, you go, well, already, as you described, coal, coal and gas are a little bit slower to, to start up uh, or ramp up. And so batteries fill that void already. There's a chance there. The evening peak lasts for a couple of hours most days. It's just what you do, how you hedge yourself uh, on those... Uh, long, hot, no-wind days when there is less generation in general available, right? And that's, that's I guess, where, where the market's got to get itself sorted and, um, and where we go carefully in terms of how we look at offtakes, you know, firming. Sometimes I think we believe it would be better to be able to firm yourself. Sometimes market products are available. It's all, it's all quite, quite evolving and complex. We still believe if you know what a battery can do, you can watch them evolve over time, and adding hours to a battery is easier than um, uh, than if you're starting with nothing in terms of a battery. Right? That's why we want one. Yeah, I agree with that. And I guess my final fi final question I just want to ask is in uh, regards to this uh, AEMO and all the transmission. And I, I mean, is, do you have a sense that AEMO is actually and all the other work that's going on besides AEMO, all the other reform processes, is, do you have a, I mean, how long do you think it'll be before uh, we're on top of the transmissions issues in, in, in the NEM? If I look forward three years, do you think do you think it'll be pretty clear sailing by then or is it going to take longer? No chance. I think, I think um, between all the bodies that are around that try and influence um, the energy market in Australia, there's a lot of good work going on probably suggest uh, respectfully there's not a lot of coordination to that work and that's what has to be sorted out before Australia will have a plan that's actually going to be useful. Building transmission isn't isn't all that's required. You know? There's a lot of co coordination both in policy uh, sense but also coordination in terms of what technology is out there to control this stuff. Now we're gonna we're gonna find someone like like you know Google or uh, which Audrey will enjoy, but Google or someone is going to come in and eat, eat AMO's lunch because they'll have a control system that can talk to all these devices and um, and do what you probably would expect AMO should be prepared to do or ready to do now. I, I agree with that. I completely agree with that. Over to you, Giles. That was interesting uh, conversation. I, I do have to ask before we go, um, Dion, um, I've just got two, two questions left. Um, one, just about the Dundonald Wind Farm. Um, apart from the, your uh, connection problems, you had an unfortunate event last month when uh, one of the uh, turbine blades fell off. Um, it's not a particularly good look. It's, um, it hasn't um, 
and it's actually happened at some of those Vistas turbines, uh, Lala Wind Farm, I think, last year, in a, in, in a lightning strike, and a couple of times over in the US. Now, they've got about 400,000 turbines around the globe, so it's not as all they're all falling off everywhere. But um, what's your understanding? I mean, loose bolts, is that a satisfactory explanation? What, 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 what do you know about it, and, um, and how confident are you that it's not going to happen again? Mm, yeah, so we, we know a lot about it, of course. We're, we're an active asset manager. Um, what, what we're more interested in is, was it a type fault or a serial fault in that turbine that we should be worried about? In this case, we think it was a human error issue that we, we understand. We don't know why the human uh, was subject to an error, but uh, they are now and again. And, um, and we do understand the, the mechanism that caused that blade to fall and how to uh, provide appropriate assurance that others won't. So we're in that zone. You know, investors are doing a good job. They... They uh, understand completely what's going on. They share it with us, and, and that's why we're operating that asset. The, the things that happened at other wind farms, as you described, were, were probably lightning-related. This wasn't, and um, it was a bit more contained uh, to local manufacturing. Mm. Okay. And, and, and now just to finish off, just a broader question. Um, Andrew Forrest uh, from Fortescue this week has announced this sort of grand plan for green hydrogen. Is He's talking of um, wind and solar developments in... A, not just a multiple gigawatt scale, but a hundreds of gigawatt scale, 235 gigawatts now. Andrew Forrest is a man sort of prone to sort of making grand vision statements. But if we are going to decarbonise the grid um, globally, this is where we're kind of heading. So when you look at Andrew Forrest's announcement and his um, efforts to sort of strike deals with governments and sort of put his company at the forefront of that, do you sort of think, um, yes, you're right, or no, you're kidding yourself, you're dreaming, or... Well done. You've kind of seen where the future's going to go. Good luck with that effort to, to get in the front foot in it. Yeah. I tend to, to, to go towards the latter of that. I think good on him. He's seen where it's going. Um, hydrogen's got a role to play, definitely. Uh, I, I guess it's not quite clear where that role is and how fast the use case for all this green hydrogen w will grow. Um, so, so for us, you know, we know we can make hydrogen. Uh, it's very expensive to make it from renewable electricity for any electricity at the moment. Uh, that will change. It's the use case. Who's, who's going to be first to convert you know, their airplanes to hydrogen or their, their boats to That's got a long run ahead of it. And So I don't particularly consider the, the, the manufacture of hydrogen as being the blocker there. I think it's the use case. And So um, Fortescue... Uh, probably right in that if hydrogen does set itself alight in terms of the use, then there will be huge opportunity for those who have got renewable energy assets either built or ready to be built. Mm. And um, one of the things that I've learned about the electrolyzer technology that's, that's sort of favoured out there at the moment is that it can be operated quite verbally. So it can match, say, the output from a solar or a wind farm. So seems to be there's a match made in heaven there as long as someone wants the hydrogen. <laughs> David, any final th th thoughts before we wrap up? No, I'd just like to say thanks to, to Dion and Giles, and I'm sure you'll thank our sponsors uh, and uh, to recognise again that, uh, I, you know, from my reading, Tilt has been a, a good operator and has a good portfolio and I think that those, uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to be a case of being able to sit on your hands and, and because I think the market will overtake people who do that. But it's nice to start with a, 
uh, almost like a rugby team, as much as I hate to say it, with 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 a decent set of assets and and, and a coordinated plan before you go on the field. <laughs> Dion, um, thank you very much for joining us um, on on this podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, David and Giles. Good discussion, thank you. And of course, as usual, the All Blacks will win like a good Kiwi company such as Tilt might. Oh dear, that's a very provocative way to ending. Um, I should point out that Dion at the moment is in New Zealand. I think he's been sitting next to a cafe on the beach. Um, I've been sitting in a car park in Canberra at uh, the Dixon shops. David's been at home on his um, iPhone. Such is the way that podcasts have been done. I'd like to thank um, Evergen and Pylon, our sponsors. Thank you very much for your ongoing support. Thank you all to your uh, listeners um, for your support and your enthusiastic um, feedback to us. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.